just a moment, you'll be listening to a message that was given by Pastor Kyle Olsfeld of Grace Baptist Church in Pampa, Texas. We encourage you to give attention to the message and to follow along in your Bible. I want to begin by saying this, that over the years I have preached on the subject of our wants on many occasions. And so tonight I'm going to touch on this again just very briefly. But I think all of us, when we think of the word want, we tend to think of wanting something we don't have. And that could apply to so many different areas of life. That being the case, I'd like us to think about the word want from a little bit broader perspective. And it's not just something that we don't have that we would like to have in our possession, but we could already have something know that it could be better and want it to be better, or it could be something we already have in our possession. Maybe it is good, but we want it to stay that way. To try to illustrate what I'm talking about, think about very quickly the subject of marriage, all right? That is something that most of us can identify with. A single person may want to be married. It is something they don't have. It is something that is not in their possession, but they would like it to be true of them. So they might say, I want to be married. But many of us who are already married, we would say, well, that's not what we want in that same sense. We're not wanting this because we already have it, so to speak, in our possession. But someone could say this, I want the marriage to be better than it is right now. I want the marriage to be better than it is right now. Or someone could say something like this, hey, listen, I'm already married. It's pretty good. It's going fine. There are no issues. There are no no struggles that we're working through. What we want is for it to continue this way, for it to just continue on in this fashion being a good marriage. So do you understand how the word want can be applied in different ways and in different fashions? Uh, I, I trust you do. I mean, this is not real deep or else I would not have come up with it. And, and so we see that that want can be applied in several different ways from several different perspectives. Now, as you go through life, we know this, that you can either approach things from a secular viewpoint or from a Christian viewpoint. I mean, every one of us, we go through life with one of two viewpoints, either a secular viewpoint or a Christian viewpoint. And tonight, I would hope that all of us would be able to say we're going through life with a Christian viewpoint. We don't want to go through life with a secular viewpoint because that will mess us up. So it would be our desire and it should be our our effort to go through life with a Christian viewpoint, not a secular viewpoint. So in light of that, I want to ask us to consider this, that when we want something in life, who is responsible for making that want become a reality? Well, again, if we think about this from a Christian standpoint or from a Christian viewpoint, here is what we would say. Well, God then has to be the one who is responsible for bringing those wants to fruition. If somebody wants to be married, then what they have to do is they have to say this, I want to wait on God's timing. I want God to be the one who accomplishes this. I want God to be the one who produces this. I don't want to do this on my own. If somebody says, listen, I'm already married, but I think our marriage needs to get better. I think our marriage needs to get stronger. Then from the Christian viewpoint, we would say this, God's got to do that. 
God needs to make this marriage better. God needs to make this marriage stronger. And if someone were to say, hey, listen, we've already got a good marriage. We've already got things the, the, the way that we think they need to be and ought to be. Yes, there's room for improvement, but we're doing pretty good. But if we wanted to continue that way, we would say this, God has to do it. We have to have God helping us. We have to have God aiding us to continue in this direction we're headed. And that's all true and that's all accurate, but this is also true that God's not going to do all the work in every situation. There are times that we, even as Christians, have to put forth a little bit of effort. It is not completely and entirely upon God to do everything that we want to see happen in this life. So again, to try to stick with the illustration and move through this quickly, if somebody says, I want to get married, fantastic. We need to pray that God will bring you the right person, but don't just make it impossible for it to happen. At some point, you got to show yourself friendly. At some point, you have to let people know that you're kind of on the market. It doesn't mean that you're making yourself, you know, in an inappropriate fashion available to people, but, but you got to let people know, hey, listen, I'm interested in that and, and I'm praying that way and, and I am doing what I can to make sure that God can do his part in my life at the appropriate time. If we want a better marriage, we've got to step up to the plate and do our part as well. Well, God, things are going good. We just want them to continue. And again, God would say, I'll help, but you got to do your part. You want this, that's good, that's fine, but you have to do your part. I'm trying to show us a very simple principle, a very simple pattern here, that when we want things, we can approach it from different angles, from different viewpoints. And, and in wanting it, there's not necessarily anything wrong with it, but God has to do it but we have to do our part in order for it to be done. Now, why say that? Well, if you're in 1 Kings chapter 10, I want us to understand just a little bit of context. All right? In 1 Kings chapter 10, Solomon is the king of Israel, and he is now the undisputed king of Israel. You may remember that when David died, there was some conflict, and there were a couple of people trying to, to make other people be the king of Israel uh, following the death of David, and yet uh, Solomon was the one that God wanted to be the king. And so Solomon is the undisputed king of Israel at this time. And also, by the time you come to 1 Kings chapter 10... Solomon had had his moment where God asked him what he would have of him or what he, he could do for him as the king of Israel. And you may remember that Solomon said this, I need wisdom, I need discernment, I need understanding. I don't know how to go out, I don't know how to come in. And in that request, I want us to see this, it's very important, that Solomon manifested a spirit of humility. As the scripture records, he could have asked for possessions. He could have asked for victory over his enemies. Solomon could have asked for anything, but Solomon admitted his ignorance. Solomon admitted his inability to do what he had been called to do. So he said, God, I need wisdom. And that was a manifestation of the humility of Solomon at that time. In 1 Kings chapter 10, it is also before, obviously, what we read in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse number 1, where it says, But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, 
Zidonians, and Hittites. What does it mean when it says that Solomon loved many strange women? It means this, that he gave his heart to women of ungodly nations, of pagan nations, and we know that in that love or in those relationships that he had, it took him away from his walk with God. Those women that were defined as strange women, not by way of their personality, but by way of their relationship with God, those ladies served as a spiritual detriment to Solomon. So understand that between chapter 3, where Solomon asked for the wisdom, you've got a certain number of time where Solomon lived before the record is given of verse 1 of chapter 11, how Solomon loved strange women. So we don't quite understand the full flow of things. But notice in verse number 24 of chapter 10 what it says. It says, And all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us this, that from all over the different parts of the earth, wherever mankind dwelt at that time, it would not be uncommon for people to want to come to Solomon because of his wisdom. They wanted to hear his wisdom. Maybe they had questions. Maybe they had issues going on, and they needed some wisdom, or they wanted to be exposed to the wisdom of Solomon. And it goes on to say how that when people would come, they would bring gifts somewhat as payment for the services of Solomon. And so this is something that happened more than once. It happened on many occasions. However, before you get to verse number 24, Obviously, you've got verse number one, correct? That's how this thing works. You go to Bible college to figure these things out. So look there in verse number one. It says, And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. All right, so what does verse number one tell us? Well, verse number one tells us that the queen of Sheba did what verse number 24 tells us, that she was one of many who had heard of the wisdom of Solomon, and based on his fame, based on everything that she had heard of him, here is what she did. She decided she would make the trip, come see Solomon, and here's what she was going to do. She was going to prove him or test him with hard questions. Notice what it says in verse number two. It says, And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. So she brought payment like anyone else would have. She asked the questions. She communed with him. And and everything that was on her heart, anything that she had questions about, she presented it to him. And it says in verse number three, And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything hid from the king which he told her not. So whatever the question was, Solomon had the answer. So again, were they hard? We don't know. Were they just difficult for her and easy for Solomon? We don't know. It doesn't matter. But notice in verse number four it says, And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. 
So however long she was there in Jerusalem, however long she was there in the presence of Solomon and all of his attendants, she saw things that took her breath away, that made her stand in awe of all of it. Now, all of this to this point is kind of like, a okay, who cares? What's the point? Well, notice in verse number eight, a verse that I think is very important that some of you have probably noticed in the past. I want us to see what she says of her time there at the kingdom, again, not knowing how long it would have been. She said, happy are thy men, happy are these thy servants, which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. As she is talking about her time, as she is reviewing everything that she has witnessed in her days there at Jerusalem, one of the conclusions that she comes to and one of the assessments that she makes of the kingdom is this, is Solomon, as it relates to your men, and Solomon, as it relates to your servants, here is what they are. They are happy. They are happy. What does it mean when we hear the word happy? Well, oftentimes in the scripture we know this, that the word happy is also translated blessed, or blessed is translated happy. They are oftentimes interchangeable, so it could be said, blessed are thy men, blessed are these thy people which stand continually before thee. So it's almost like she is saying, you know, your men are blessed to be around this every day. Your men are blessed to be in this position, and your servants to be able to hear your wisdom at, at all times, in all occasions, in all seasons. You are, or these who work for you, who serve you, they are blessed. But if blessed means happy and happy means blessed, then it's okay then to consider the definition of happy. Because here's what it means. It means to be delighted or it means to be pleased. It means to be glad. It indicates some pleasure. It indicates contentment and it indicates joy. Now follow this. Happy means blessed, blessed means happy. So to carry out the thoughts a little bit more, the word happy means to be delighted, to be pleased, to be glad, and it indicates pleasure, contentment, and joy. You know what the Queen of Sheba realized when she was there in Jerusalem with Solomon? You know what she realized? This is a happy place. The people around here, because of how they are blessed, they are happy. It's like when you're in the presence of the king and you're in the presence of his men and you're in the presence of his servants. It's like when you come into contact with all these different people who would make up the kingdom. Here is what you realize. These people are just happy people. It's like they enjoy their existence here in the kingdom of Solomon, obviously, in Jerusalem. Now, now, follow this logic and see if this makes sense. If it doesn't, I apologize. But, but follow this and, and see if you could say, I think I see what you're saying here. This grabbed her attention. The happiness of the people. You know what that seems to indicate? it seems to then indicate that that was somewhat of an unusual atmosphere. Think about this. If it was common 
in all kingdoms, and the queen of Sheba would have had some experience with other kingdoms, if a happy environment was commonplace, it probably would not have been something that captured her attention and something that she commented on. So the fact that she noticed this tells us it was probably a very rare or a fairly unique environment to experience. So it kind of begs this question, if what I'm saying is right, how did it happen? If Solomon and his kingdom there in Jerusalem enjoyed this rare, unique happy environment how did it happen did solomon force it did did he say to his men listen i want a happy place around here you better wear a smile or we got problems you know is it something that he said hey listen guys no matter what chin up smile on we're going to put a good front on hey we got the queen of sheba here let's all act happy is that what happened doesn't seem to be the the, the case so how would it have been said of Solomon and his men and his servants, man, this is a happy place. How did it happen? Well, no doubt God had to have a part in that. Because outside of the presence of God in a place, you're not normally going to have a real happy place very long. I mean, where you've got too many personalities and too many Attitudes, it, it normally creates friction pretty soon and pretty often, right? So God had to have had something with this environment that was present at the time the Queen of Sheba came and visited. But it wasn't all God responsible for it. Again, think about this. Best we can tell at this moment in Solomon's life, what was he doing? He was walking in humility and in obedience to God and his will for his life. So what you see is this, and, and, and I think this is important. You have a happy, unique, rare environment, obviously that God had a hand in. But God alone was not the one responsible for the happiness and the joy and the contentment. Solomon was doing his part. And as Solomon did his part, God did his part. And together it created the atmosphere of joy and contentment and pleasure and gladness. A rare, unique environment because Solomon did his part, and God did his part. Think about it. When Solomon stopped walking in humility, and when Solomon stopped walking in obedience, what happened to the joy and the gladness and the happiness of Solomon? It went away. So what does this have to do with anything? Well, let me ask you. How many of us want to enjoy, for lack of better words, a happy life? Anyone with any measure of honesty would say, I want to enjoy a happy life. 
That doesn't mean we're going to enjoy a perfect life. But if we want to enjoy a happy life, what we've got to be reminded of and what we, we've got to, to realize on a daily basis is this, is it's not all up to God to produce happiness and joy and contentment and gladness in my life. I am responsible to a great degree of how much joy and gladness and happiness I carry with me from day to day. I, I can't wake up every day and say, all right, God, I guess you know what you got to do for me. You got to make me happy today. God, you've got to give me joy. God, you've got to give me contentment. God, you've got to give me gladness. Listen, it's not all on him to do that. It has a lot to do with how we approach each day. So what do I have to do in order to help create the joy and the gladness that I want in my life? I have to be willing to walk in humility and I have to be willing to walk in obedience. And when I do my part, God will do his part. And then between he and I working together, we can produce something that is unique and rare in this world. Follow this for just a moment. This really is, I think, something that could be very helpful. If I wake up tomorrow willing to be humble and willing to be obedient, and if Susie will do the same thing, you know what will happen? We'll create something within our marriage with God's help that is unique and rare in this world where most marriages are not happy. Someone could look at us and say, man, they got a happy marriage. But if I wake up tomorrow unwilling to be humble, if I wake up tomorrow unwilling to be obedient, or if Susie says, you know what, I'm not into this humility thing and I'm not into this obedient thing, I, I, I can promise you it won't be long and we'll not have a marriage that is unique. We'll have a marriage like everyone else seems to have out there. One that's miserable and one that's frustrating. Imagine if you went to work tomorrow and everybody said, you know, we want this to be a happy place. You know what you'd have to do? Well, you'd all have to wake up in the morning saying this, all right, I, I want to walk in humility. I want to walk in obedience. And as I do that, and as you do that, and as you do that, guess what? God will do his part. And we're going to have an environment at work that is unique from so many other places out there. You know why a lot of places are just places of employment that people don't really enjoy? Because people don't tend to walk in humility and obedience, and the presence of God never really makes its presence known. If we want this happy, blessed, content, joyful environment in these areas of life, it's on us as much as it is on God. Now tonight, one other area, and then we're going to be dismissed. Should this church be a happy place? Should be. We should want this to be a happy place. We should want this to be one of those unique experiences where people come and say, man, they're different. So what do we have to do? Well, we've all got to pray every day. God, make our church happy. God, make people happy. 
God, you know that person in our church who's always got the frown. Make them happy. Hey, God has to do his part. But what do we have to do? We have to do our part to make this a place where we're happy, where we've got joy, where we've got gladness, where people would say something like this, what a blessing to be a part of that environment. So what do we have to do to help produce this? We've got to be people who walk in humility and who strive to live in obedience. And when we're that kind of person, it begins to change everything about us, which then produces an environment that God can bless and make us different than the average setting, the average environment. So ask yourself from a personal standpoint, listen, from a personal standpoint, not anyone else, you and you alone, what could I do? What could I do to make this better? It's not up to everyone else. It's up to us. What can I do to make this place better than it already is? If you've appreciated this message from Kyle Olsfeld of Grace Baptist Church, let us know by contacting us on our website at gbcpampa.com or on our Facebook page, Grace Baptist Church, Pampa, Texas.